Heavenly Father, we can say with the disciples of Christ, where shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. What a blessing in this time of confusion, of conflicting information and uncertainty that we can always go to thee. There is always a way open into the Holy of Holies where we can approach thee and lay before thee our concerns, our requests, our hopes. And we know that as a loving Father, thou dost graciously hear thy children. What a blessing, Heavenly Father. What a, what a comfort it is to know that this life is not all that there is, that there is a better life coming for those that are prepared for it, that there is a God in heaven who cares and who feels the pain and heartache of his children. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this audience. We thank thee for the special blessing that where two or three are gathered in thy name, that thou art indeed in the midst. And Heavenly Father, as we seek now to learn thy will and then to do it, we want to pray for thy rich blessing and for the presence of thy good and Holy Spirit here among us, that as we look into thy word together, that we would receive from thee everything we need. Encouragement for those that need encouragement. Hope for those that are hopeless. Correction for those that need correction. And always a focus on the eternal so that we do not become caught up in that which is temporal and carnal. Be with those that are grieving the loss of loved ones. We're, many, we're aware of many that have, have recently um, passed away either due to complications from this virus or from other causes. And we know there are many that are sick also, Heavenly Father, and we want to pray for them as well, even though we cannot list them all by name at this moment. May thy name be glorified through the prayers of thy people. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. A long-standing tradition of our church has been simply to open the Word of God, and I fear that that tradition may be moved aside as being maybe naive or um, uneducated, unlearned, but I think it is a good tradition, and so I don't want to leave that, and so for this morning's meditation, I've just simply opened the Word of God, and it is opened to the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel. Well, you're finding that. The reason that I find that this tradition is, is a, a, a good one and one that should not be abandoned, not that we can't have sermons that are based on a previous meditation, of course, that goes without saying. But I feel that when we simply open the Word of God, it is the opportunity for God to disarm us of our preconceived thoughts and notions. And so it's always healthy for us to come as a little child to our Heavenly Father and ask Him for what is good for us. Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning with the first verse. And he, and that is Jesus, said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, 
which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only, with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, and questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with, gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came upon unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand 
and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I read until the 29th verse. We have before us this morning a rather familiar chapter. I think it's been meditated on many times. But of course, the thing that I continually marvel at when I come to the Gospels is how no matter how many times I've read these accounts, there's always something in there that the Lord can show me that I've never noticed before or that maybe hasn't had the proper weight. Mark is an interesting writer. When he records the events of Christ's life, you'll notice many times he uses words like suddenly. And he talks about people being amazed. And the, the shocking nature of Christ's ministry. He was a young man. Uh, tradition has it that John Mark recorded this gospel and that it was actually the account of the Apostle Peter that he took down for him and for the early church. And there's an immediacy, a freshness in, in the way that he relays these things to us. It begins here by Jesus making a statement that was surprising. And I'm sure when he made that statement, many of the disciples scratched their heads he said, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. You can certainly understand how the disciples in Acts expected the Lord to come at any minute to the point where some actually say, well, what's the point of working if the Lord's coming so soon? And so they had to be instructed, no. You don't know the exact hour. Don't be idle but wait for the coming of the Lord. Jesus simply said, there be some here that shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. I think perhaps one way to understand this is exactly what we've been doing on Wednesday nights over the last number of, uh, last couple months, going through the book of Revelation that God gave to John, where he indeed saw the kingdom of God descending like a bride adorned for her husband. It could also be referring to this account that, that comes uh, to, to pass immediately following about the Mount of Transfiguration, that they would see this glorification of Jesus Christ on the top of that mount. It's interesting to note here. You know, some people will say, the Lord doesn't have favorites, or God doesn't have favorites. I don't think scripture bears that out. It's true that we all have value and worth in the eyes of the Lord. It's true. He loves us more than any other human being. But he does have those that are special vessels picked for his purpose. 
that he uses in special ways and that he reveals special things to. Of the many disciples that followed Christ, he selected 12. They were special. But of those 12, he selected three. And those three received special revelation from the Lord. This is one example. He takes them into a high mountain. I think it was called Mount Tabor in another place. And I wonder what the disciples thought when they were selected for this. Sometimes we read these accounts and we just take things for granted and move on. What would it be if the Lord asked you to come apart with him? Would you seek a polite excuse? Would you explain that you're already so busy doing things and there's many that need to be tended to and you couldn't possibly take time apart? I don't know, but it's a good question, I think, for all of us. They were to go apart into this mountain, so Jesus walks with them up this mountain And it says he was transfigured before them. He was changed. That simple preacher from Galilee, dressed simply, with the clothes of a working man. He did have one special thing, the coat made for him by the women. Perhaps he had it already at this time. Scripture tells us it was woven without seam. They took special care to make a special coat for that rabbi. But his raiment began to change in front of their eyes. It became so white, it tells us, exceeding white as snow. The tops of the mountains in, in the Holy Land can hold snow. Hermon, uh, Mount Hermon is talked about. Um, so they, they knew what it was. But then it says, so as no fuller on earth can white them. White very white fabric in ancient cultures was very difficult to do. They didn't have chemical bleaches or ways to remove color very well. They had to use uh, um, uh, other methods. Uh, and a fuller was a professional clothes washer, someone who would um, wash garments by hand to get out the stains, soak them perhaps in different types of uh, uh, solutions to try to get them as white as possible and then spread them out to dry in the sun so that the sun could also dry and bleach the fabric. If you remember, uh, the, the fuller's field is referred to in scripture as the place where it was a flat place where he could spread out the garments in a way that would allow them to be both uh, um, dried and bleached by the sun. But this garment that our Lord wore was so white, we can read about it in Revelation as well. So bright and shining. For anyone who washes clothes, you know how there's nothing whiter than a, than a pure white um, garment when it's never been washed before. That's as white as it's going to be. Each time it's washed, each time it's worn, it gets a little dingy. It uh, may 
gets some stains. It definitely gets a little bit more gray as other colors work its way into the fabric. We understand how that works with time. And I remember an old sister on my baptism day giving me the advice. She said, you have been given a white garment, pure white. Those of us that have walked with the Lord for some years, we have stains and flecks and things on it. Try to keep that garment as white and as clean as possible. And sometimes we get careless. I think we can all admit that. But when we consider our own actions, you know, comparing, I, I'm in the field, I guess, of applied arts, graphic design, and, and I, I know very well that colors are relative. When you compare colors together, um, they, things appear one way or the other by what it's contrasted with. And it can be the same way that, you know, we look at something, we think, well, that's pure white. And then we have a sample of something that really is pure white, and we see that it's actually a dingy gray. And when we compare ourselves with others, we can think that our garments are quite white, that we are quite clean and pure. But when compared with the one whose garment is so white that no fuller can white it, we have to admit that we are far from the mark, far from where we should be. That's not to be discouraging. Because the Bible tells us that we have a way to cleanse ourselves. It can be done through confession. It can be done through prayer. It can even be done, like we're doing this morning, through the washing of the water of the Word. All of these things will purify us. And we need to pay attention to this. We need to be careful with this. This is not something to be explained away. Never seek a covering or cloak for your sin. When the Lord reveals something, do something about it. Don't hide it. I remember a little humorous cartoon, but it points to a truth, I think. There's a man getting ready for work in the morning, and his wife is holding his suit jacket for him, and he's putting on his shirt, and you see him from the back, and there's a big iron burn mark in the middle of the back of his, his white shirt. And she says, I can't explain now, but don't take off your jacket at work. And I think sometimes our thinking may not be all that dif different either. We are more inclined to cover up our faults than allow the Lord to expose them and clean them and deal with them. And that's dangerous. The pulpit should always speak truth and even speak things to us that are difficult for us to hear. If the preacher says something that makes you angry, be very careful. It may not be the preacher that's the problem, but your attitude towards sin that has been exposed because as our first parents did, we want to cover up. We need to be careful.
This figure of Christ, I remember clearly in my mind's eye, so many of these accounts are also linked with the old picture Bible storybook that we all read as, as children in Sunday school. And there's that image there of the disciples falling to the ground and Christ in this, in this beautiful white garment being uh, held above the earth and Moses and, and Elijah talking with him there and the cloud. What must it have been like to see that? And as that cloud descends, there's a voice that comes out of the cloud. And they heard very clearly what it said. This is my beloved son, hear him. Why did they need to be told that? Why was that important? Weren't they already listening to Jesus? One of the things that I have to correct one of my sons with is that when I start explaining something to him, he says, I know, I know, I know. And I have to tell him, no, you don't. Wait and listen. There may be something in my instructions that you have not heard before. And there's a danger also for us that I see in this, that we think that we are familiar with the word of God and we stop listening. That's dangerous. There's a saying in the world, familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes by thinking we already know it, we need to watch out. There's a phrase referred to as expositional preaching, preaching from the word, preaching the meaning out of the word. And that's good, but when it becomes systematic, you may feel like you already know it. You know what's there to be learned. There is a higher order than expositional preaching. It's inspirational preaching. Preaching that is inspired by the Spirit of God. That is preaching that reaches down into the hearts of the hearers and changes them. That's what we need. If we hear and our lives are no different, the word has been wasted on us. Hear him. And Peter makes this statement too. Let's, let's build three tabernacles here. One for you, Lord. One for Moses. One for Elijah. And there I see a, a warning also for us. He says, not knowing what he spake. He didn't know what to say. Often when we have a, a spiritual experience or a good experience, we look to prolong it. And that's not a bad thing. But if we're looking just to camp out on it, thinking that I'm in the right spot and as long as I stay here, that's all, that has, that, that's all I have to do. We've missed it. The mountaintop experience with the Lord is always for the valley. After this mountaintop, they went back down. We need to carry the experience with us, not camp out on the experience. This will now be two years running where there has been no Eastern camp. I don't know what people in our churches make of it. I mean, I know what my children make of it. They're disappointed, obviously. They enjoy camp. But so many, I think, attach importance to that gathering, thinking it's 
going to mark some new spiritual rebirth for them. A location will not do that. Much like the Mount of Transfiguration, it's, it's an experience, perhaps, that can be tied to deep spiritual meaning, but it's meant to go with you into the valley. Christ didn't leave them after this mountaintop experience. He went down the valley with them and showed them things and even pointed out deficiencies in their spiritual walk. That's what we need. That's where the real living is. If we wait for moments and experiences before anything changes, you've missed the point. Christ is here among us now. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Think about that for a moment. That must have required a fair bit of self-control on the part of the three disciples that had experienced this thing. Can you imagine experiencing something so amazing and not being allowed to talk about it? But Jesus knew his disciples well, as well as he knows each one of us. And he knows what's good for us. We know these same disciples had problems with pride. They figure that they should be the ones to sit on the right and the left hand of Christ in his kingdom. Peter wanted to know what he was going to get in exchange for giving up these things to follow the Lord. It's important to remember that when God blesses us with something that is spiritual, something that is good, that is never for us to lift ourselves up. It is rather a preparation for a trip down the mountain. Our forefathers were blessed. They received, I believe, revelation from the Lord. They lived lives that were exemplary. So much so that the, the people around them noticed. There was a consistent character about the believers that could be counted on. I fear that that is being watered down as we explain away things. We justify adopting cultural norms. We make excuses for our own lack of spirituality, our own lack of victory over sin. And the testimony is lost. We wonder why our words have no power. We read next that coming down the mountain, they were met by a, a throng, a crowd. And the disciples, the other nine, 
were there with, of course, the other disciples that followed Christ and the great multitude. And in the middle of them all, there was a young lad, a boy, it says, brought by his father, who was demon-possessed. Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. The boy could not talk. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they would cast him out, and they could not. Think about those words. And they could not. Perhaps the disciples, one after the other, invoking the name of the Lord, invoking the name of Jesus, commanding the demon to get out, and the demon perhaps laughing in their faces. I don't know what it was actually like. Scripture doesn't record, but in my mind's eye and knowing the way that men are, we tend to be more competitive than women are. Perhaps each of the disciples, one after the other, went there. Andrew had been one of the disciples from the beginning. He had brought many of the disciples to, to Christ. Perhaps he tried. Then there is the disciple Nathaniel, who was said of him that he was an Israelite and whom was no guile. Perhaps some said, let, let him come. He's a holy man. Let him come try. And then when they could not, trying to justify and explain and, and get their heads around why they couldn't cast out this demon, they had cast out other demons. It says they rejoiced and that the spirits were subject to them. Is there unconquered territory in our own life? Are there things over which we have no power? That's dangerous. It represents a serious lack, a lack that the Lord never planned for us to have. We hear now in the news about the ICU wards being filled to overflowing with COVID patients. If you or I in an uninfected state were to walk down the middle of that ICU ward, we would be abnormal by our, by our healthiness compared to those that are very sick. But it's the sick that are the ones that are truly abnormal. Health is the natural state. Sickness is the exception. Christ's children were always expected. The children of God, Christ's disciples, were always expected to be different than the natural sinful order. Remember, the multitude... And this man brought 
this child to the disciples for healing, hoping that they, they were something different. There is no excuse for sin in the life of the believer. It should not be there. Now at this point, there will be some that say, ah, you're teaching sinless perfection. How ridiculous. Anyone who has hung around uh, uh, the, our, our circles for any, limited, any length of time will realize we never preach that. But we certainly preach that there is no reason that the, that the, that the believer needs to sin. Every, uh, every tool has been placed at his or her disposal. Every help and aid has been given. And when a believer sins, or if a believer sins, is probably a better way to say it, if a believer sins, he only has his or her carnal nature to blame. The fault is never on the side of the Lord. He expects us to be holy as he is holy. That's a hard doctrine for some. Why? Because they are not really interested in what the gospel of Jesus Christ has to offer. The gospel is by its very nature radical and transformative. This Mount of Transfiguration experience was a visual picture for the, for the disciples that saw it of the transformed life of the believer. We are to be lifted up among the saints and to be white and pure and beautiful. And it should be, God should be able to say of us, this is my beloved son or this is my beloved daughter. Do you understand maybe why it was that Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this until after my resurrection? They won't understand it. They won't understand it correctly until then. This account is so touching. Anyone who has children of their own can simply uh, insert themselves into this story. And even if you don't have children, you can certainly understand the heart of this father. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Sin is self-destructive by nature. I mentioned not that long ago that I've begun reading through Dr. Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And it's an interesting and instructive read for those that are inclined that way. But the thing that I get most out of it is how broken we all are. How broken 
we are in our natural state and how we need to be rescued from chaos, how we desperately need order. And for me, the thing that just looms large above the whole thing is how destructive sin is and how it destroys and devours. That's what I'm getting most out of this book. How it destroys everything. Everything from uh, proper uh, care of self to uh, our relationships with other people and even the way that uh, uh, government and, and authority is handled and on to how we even treat the environment that we live in. Sin will destroy. It's like a cancer. And this father tells Christ how this spirit is seeking to destroy his son. Put yourself there. In, 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 we don't know how old the boy is here, but put yourself in the circumstance. He says, ever since he's been a child, an innocent child, this spirit has been trying to destroy him. Can you imagine being the father of that child? Watching at every moment whether or not this spirit was going to try to throw him into the fire and burn him. I mean, this child must have had scars and, and marks on his body from the many times the spirit had tried unsuccessfully to end his little life. And so the father brings this child to the only one he, had, he knew of that might be able to help. I don't think it's idle speculation to think about those things that are outside of what is recorded here in Scripture. But I imagine this man must have gone to doctors. He must have gone to the local rabbi, the local holy man, to see if they could do anything. He knew he was dealing with a spirit. Perhaps, like the woman with the issue of blood, he'd wasted the, his savings on doctors trying to cure his son. I don't know. He doesn't try to bargain with, with Christ on, on, on monetary grounds. He appeals to Christ's compassion. That's it. If thou canst do anything even lighten it a little, have compassion on us and help us. Faith is not faith until it has no other option. It's true that when we pray, we often pray for the doctors that are treating someone. But ultimately, whenever we pray that way, we acknowledge the sovereignty of God over everything. That it is God, ultimately, who, who decides who will live and who will not. He numbers our days, Scripture tells us. We don't. And so if life is prolonged, we believe that it is because God intervened. And the truly honest will say, even at that moment, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I don't think we really believe unless we wrestle with unbelief as well.
That's not to say unbelief, the state of unbelief is acceptable to God. It's not. Because when you settle in the state of unbelief, it is a moral failure, not an intellectual one. I won't go into that now. I'll just mention that. But we can see now what Jesus says, and I believe this underlines it. He said simply, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. A dumb and deaf spirit. My family recently rewatched the, uh, the account of Helen Keller and her training under, I think it was Anne, I forget her last name now. How she reached into that child's silent and dark world and connected with her in, in, in a marvelous way to be dumb and deaf that's, that's 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 staggering to think of that state to try to imagine what that must be like but when the creator of the universe speaks even the dumb and deaf can hear and speak. He says, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. When, when God does a work, it's, it's irreversible. He doesn't, he doesn't give something and take it back. I'm not teaching eternal security either, so don't think that I am. That is a, that is a different issue, and we can talk about that some other time. But when God does a work, it is done in entirety. And he always, he always does more even than what is promised. This is the truth that I'm slowly learning from Scripture. God gives promises. But when he fulfills those promises, he always exceeds the promise. Take some time and look through your Bibles. Look for the promise and see how the Lord exceeded it. And don't be content just with some kind of a, a low-level fulfillment. Ask the Lord. Approach him in faith as this man did. The disciples privately, I knew why it was privately, they had just been exposed, made to look bad in front of the people by their inability. And then Christ comes down the mountain and casts out this demon. And they wanted to know, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus simply says to, him, to them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. We've, I think, I heard this once from an old preacher, we've changed the words of the Lord. We've said, when ye sin, and if ye fast, when scripture says clearly, if ye sin, and when ye fast. Sin is never a foregone conclusion in the life of the believer. The balance is always on the other side. God has given us all things that we may live like his son did here below.
If there is failure, it's ours. But we are called to discipline ourselves, to not walk with the ways of this world, to avoid things like surfeiting and drunkenness, as the scripture commands us to, to, to be an example of, of self-discipline and sobriety in a world gone mad. We need to be careful. During this day and age, we, we need spiritual health and, and power maybe more than at any time in my living memory. The church is not the building, and if we're limited in capacity here, that really doesn't ultimately affect the church. The church is the called out ones, the fellowship of the believers. So brother and sister, we need to look at our own lives. We need to pray and fast that we would be able to endure whatever the valley may bring for us. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said, and I'm sorry for going over time. Yeah, there was a couple of items that uh, we forgot to mention this morning. Um, Sister Sigrid has some eye surgery scheduled for tomorrow, I believe. Please remember her in your prayers as well as she prepares for that. And uh, some of you may have heard that Sister Emma Keck fell uh, as well and, and um, suffered some injuries. Uh, sounds like a broken, broken arm and a bit banged up. So please keep her in prayer as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I'll just repeat that. Sister Martha, who is Sister Agnes's sister from Hungary, is it? She passed away uh, just on Tuesday, for those that may not have heard. Okay, uh, who should they contact? Who should they contact? Barb? Okay, now Sister Barb is, is visiting with her mom and helping out of course, uh, getting her settled, uh, but may need uh, some additional help. If you'd like to contact uh, Sister Barb to um, arrange that, I'm not sure of the details. She has difficulty feeding herself, I guess, so, so perhaps some help with meals. Um, but uh, that would have to go through Sister Barb, of course. Uh, we're slightly over time, but allow me to just conclude with a short finishing thought. Christ pointed out the powerlessness that comes from a lack of spiritual preparation. He also talked about the importance of faith and the danger of unbelief. There was one other thing that I recall uh, reading from scripture that uh, is a good reminder, I think, for all of us. Christ had some harsh words for the Pharisees and one of the things that he said to them was, 
how can ye believe when ye seek honor of men? I've thought about that. And there indeed is a danger when it comes to unbelief. Often, as I said before, faith is not really faith until we have no other option, until there is no other backup. And of course, the fear of failure and being exposed like the disciples were when they couldn't cast out that demon, that obviously bothered them. We need to be careful as well that in being conscious of other people's opinions and seeking honor from men, we can find ourselves quickly in unbelief. And then we'll find, find ourselves powerless as well. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said, and may he dismiss us with his blessing. This concludes our service. Amen.